0: morning uh, to all of you who have joined us for the thinkers dialogue. It's absolutely a pleasure to have you with us. Today we have a very special guest and a friend uh, Stuart Hart. Uh, So Stuart is somebody who possibly needs no introduction. Uh, In fact he's one of the foremost authorities in the world in the area of uh, if you might say capitalism, uh, how to work on the base of the pyramid and he has done some exceptional work in that area. Uh, Quite interestingly his uh, one of the most important articles ever written in that area uh, was called titled Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid, which he had actually authored with uh, the late Professor C.K. Perlaj, uh, with whom he had collaborated over years. Uh, and I, I think that that is where he started. Uh, he's done a lot of work with Ted London. Uh, he's written many books. In fact, right now, he's writing his next book, which is on the next Capital Reformation. Uh, did I get the title uh, right, Stuart? Yep. Absolutely. And uh, then, of course, uh, Stu and I also have had a very interesting uh, uh, association. We have known each other for at least about a decade, maybe, or maybe a little less. Yeah. Uh, but I think the most uh, fascinating of our associations was when we actually uh, get uh, got time to uh, get on wholly together in India. So that was the most interesting interaction we've had. And uh, we, we really had a gala time with him. And, of course, we messed his face with all the colors and everything, but it was just wonderful. Uh, when you're there with us. And then of course, uh, uh, the Institute has been uh, uh, part of the network that he created uh, on uh, the base of the pyramid and things. And so it's uh, just been a pleasure working with him and an honor to work with him Uh, So Stuart, thanks a lot for joining us uh, today for this uh, interesting interaction of
1: thinkers dialogue. Oh, well, thank you for that kind introduction. I'm delighted to be with you.
0: Uh, Thank you, Stuart. So we'll quickly dive into the uh, conversation. so you know, like, uh, Stu, like the way things are going across the world today, uh, with the kind of mess that we are in, with the kind of challenges that we see, I think it it makes your work far more important at this present juncture than any other point in the history. Uh, I think uh, as I see it, it is about how do we reduce poverty? How do we really bring people together? How do we really resolve the crisis that capitalism is facing? How do we resolve the challenges that the world is facing? And possibly, COVID has accentuated all this and makes us move into a certain direction. What are your views in terms of how things have changed, uh, how these challenges can actually be resolved as we move forward?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I, I guess I, sh- I share your, uh, your perception that we're at. I, I think we're at one of those really sort of important moments in, in history. One of those inflection point moments where where everything changes, I, and often it takes a crisis, right? It takes something a punctuation point uh, in order to really shift the game, right? And I, and so I think I think COVID, uh, as horrible as it is, I think Britain provides that. It, it provides the ability to suspend disbelief. You know, it, it it decreases the likelihood that things just go back to the way they were. And it, and it increases the potential for things to change in a much more fundamental way. Uh, and, so that, and that, in many ways, is the theme of this new book I'm working on, the, next, the so-called Next Capitalist Reformation. And I, you know, I guess I, the, the thought behind the book is that you know, I've been compelled over the last four or five years to try to understand things in a broader historical context. Um, and so I've looked now, read pretty widely historically, on how this institution that we think of as capitalism hasn't always—you know—the term capitalism is only, uh, you know, maybe 150 years old. It dates back to the mid 19th century, but the, the the practices, right, the the thought process, the mentality, and even the corp- even the organizational form of the corporation, dates back much further. It dates back four to 500 years. Uh, of course, one of the iconic examples being the British East India Company. You know, back, back in the 1600s, uh, but ha- having looked at that historically, you know what one of the things that you see clearly is that this kind of notion of capitalism has changed dramatically over the years. Right, it's not a static idea or practice. Uh, it's gone through several iterations. It's gone. It's gone through several cycles. Uh, you know, I, I use the Carl Jung term anantiodromia. Which is the tendency for things to turn to reach extremes and then turn into their opposite, and and I think that we're at one of those points right now. You know that certainly happened back in the, uh, you know back in the seventeen and eighteen hundreds. You know that was really what the American Revolution was all about was overcoming you know the destructive and monopolizing power of crown corporations like the British East India Company. That's what the revolution was fought over. In favor of smaller scale entrepreneurship and and a true market economy that Adam Smith talked about. Uh, Or you think about the turn of the 20th century, you know, with the industrial tycoons, you know, the robber barons in the in the United States, uh, there was a pushback, right? There was there there was this sort of sense of resistance to what what Carl Plany called the double movement or countervailing power. Which ended up fundamentally changing the way in which capitalism was committed. You know, starting with Teddy Roosevelt, but then ultimately with the New Deal, all right? And then the post-war years, when the practice of cap- American-style capitalism uh, was very much, you know, what's called welfare capitalism, where large corporations, even though blind to a lot of issues that we would consider important social issues today, like, like uh, uh, like, like gender parity or women or women issues or civil rights or even environment sort of blind to those issues in the in the 50s 60s and even into the 70s but nonetheless were paying living wages were focused on on employee on, on really bringing employees into the middle class that's when the middle class was built in being good community and corporate citizens you know in the, in the communities where they existed uh, and that 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 was really sort of the golden age of American style capitalism. Of course, it helped to be the dominant force coming out of World War II and not having any competition. But uh, but but still, right? That that was a very different brand of capitalism than what ultimately then came into being, starting in the '70s. You know, with the emergence and ultimate takeover of neoliberalism. So, you know, with Milton Friedman and the and the Mont Pelerin Society and so forth. Really, sort of taking over starting in the 80s and then shifting uh, the way in which capitalism was practiced. American, sort of Anglo American style capitalism, which has a lot of influence in the world uh, since the 80s, has looked very different, right? It, ha- it has been dominated by the perspective of shareholder primacy, as though one stakeholder takes prominence all- over all the others. And, and I think we're now, what we're living through now is the is sort of the consequences of all that. Not blaming COVID on shareholder primacy, but but you know I think COVID provides the uh, provides provides sort of the punctuation point, provides the impetus for really shifting gears. So I think we're we're living through one of those you know kind of epic times in human history where everything changes, where the way in which capitalism itself is practiced practiced shifts and a lot of the kinds of issues that that many of us have been talking about over the past 30 for me it's going on 40 years of trying to work on this really since financial capitalism and shareholder primacy first emerged you know kind of the market fundamentalist perspective on um, things like you know sustainability or inclusion or base of the pyramid and you know business serving the underserved and kind of leapfrog innovation and so forth these are all i think efforts over the last 20 or 30 years to address the clear shortcomings and blind spots of financial capitalism and shareholder primacy, we may be at one of those points where the whole game finally shifts. And and I think it, it and where the motive force for that comes from is probably from the capitalists themselves.
0: So that, that's fascinating. Your ending point is that the motive to change might come from capitalists uh, themselves. Why would you say that? Because until now, whatever they have done, probably a lot of companies. I'm not saying that all enterprises are the same, but they, they have had a fairly exploitative nature. Uh, there are points uh, in the present crisis which which show that uh, there is seemingly an attitude of profiteering out of misery and death right now. Uh, so what, what what makes you fairly optimistic that yeah. this might actually happen?
1: Right, right. And, and when I say that, I don't mean that it's, you know, that that it will only be the capitalists themselves that lead us to a new promised land, <laughs> but but because I think we see signs of another another really important element of this. I think from the stand from an American perspective, is the restoration of government as a positive force, you know, and a co-creator of shared prosperity. Because of course, uh, you know, the an important piece of the puzzle when it came to shareholder primacy and neoliberalism was was the. Uh, you know the the sort of the the running down of government you know the uh you know the 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 desire to really sort of turn it into a pariah that the thing to do is to get rid of it to minimize it to drown it in a bathtub to right i mean that <laughs> beginning in the 80s with the reagan administration it was the denigration of government right that it was incapable that it was bureaucratic that it was onerous that it was bureauc- you know that but i but but i think we see even now with the biden administration a new perspective about that—how important it is to have a functioning, functional government—and uh, I think that the enlightened capitalists know that, right? That 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 increasingly, I think we see enlightened capitalists recognize that government is really important, and that we need a restoration of government as a as as really sort of a partner in in the creation of shared prosperity. You know, I think in a lot of ways, if you know uh, Mariana Mazzucato's work on the entrepreneurial state she's gotten a lot of traction over the last four or five years and i think it's because that's really her perspective right that she's she's looking at where we need to go from the standpoint of new capitalism through the lens of it being more systemic right that we need to think about this as not just corporations alone or capitalists alone but rather capitalists is embedded in a larger system that includes productive you know kind of forward-leaning government. And policy, along with civil society and, and the NGO sectors. So, when, when I say I think capitalists will help lead us, I, th- I think I see a leading edge of capitalists that understand that. Uh, that over the last few years, you've begun to see them articulate at, at least, you know, the aspiration to move in that direction. Whether it's you know the Larry Finks or other corporate leaders around the world. From the standpoint of you know, you know a declaration that we're moving away from shareholder primacy to stakeholder capitalism, or whether it's you know Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, and so so you see sort of a, a confluence of thought leaders from the business sector articulating that publicly, and of course saying it and doing it are two different things. Uh, but I do think the combination of intent, the combination, so be, in other words, just beyond hyperbole and greenwash. Or even more recently, purpose wash. You know, I think there's plenty of that to go around, right? But ha- having said that, at the same time, we see more and more capitalists making public statements that they can be held accountable for. That's not to say they can't that they can't back back away from them, but they'll pay a price by doing that, right? They're on the record, uh, so I I think I see that more and more, uh, which which gives me you know hope that we are actually at one of those inflection points where over the next several years, we'll see a fundamental shift uh, in the way in which capitalism is committed. And a lot of it is attributable to the Anglo-American view of capitalism, let's face it, right? That, that's really what's infected the world over the last 30 or 40 years. You know, not, not only the narrow view of capitalism, but even the view of international development, right? With structural adjustment and so forth. I think all that's up for grabs right now.
0: So, uh, you, you know, like, you, you made a very important point, uh, at least there are two or three questions that do emerge here. So one of them is when you say restoration of government, uh, what would you mean by that? Because at this present juncture, there, there seems to be that there is more government, more intervention, and possibly that is not right. So that is one of the views. The other one is when you're saying restoration of government, then what are we really meaning by that and how the restoration right. can happen? And the second one is uh, you you also said something on intent and that was an important set of words purpose wash and green wash so i think there is more uh, what i call painting a picture that we are trying to do something important and they don't really do it Uh, so how do we get out of that as well
1: yep two really important questions because i I think when it comes to government of course we're on a knife's edge right that that whenever you're at one of these kind of important periods of instability uh per, you know periods that cha- where things change where it's an inflection point it it can go in a variety of directions <laughs> and w- one of those directions of of restoration or more government is authoritarianism and we are very much facing that prospect right that 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 if we don't seize this opportunity in a positive way the the world could easily be steered down that path i think we're facing it right now in america right that in many ways, that really is—you know—it's there, there's a fork in the road, and the question is which one does the country end up taking, and a lot of that has to do with the attitude of the people, you know, and 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 the politicians at writ large, as well as the capitalists. We shouldn't underestimate the the power and influence that that the capitalists have on the direction that the that the overall country in the world uh, can go. might take, and I think increasingly they see that that's a really important role for them to play in the world, that they that they have formative influence. Uh, so when I say restoration of government, what I mean is restoration of positive government. You know, so democracy is under fire in the world. It is, it is, there's no question about that. So it's time, you know, I think this is what animates, you know, kind of Joe Biden and the and Biden administration in the US is to demonstrate once again, that democratic forms of government can actually deliver, can be functional, can get things done, and we see some of that happening. So I think that that's heartening, uh, and if if that's joined up with you know with a capitalist sector, you know, with a business sector that recognizes the significance of the time we're living through, there's a real chance to pull a, a, a more collaborative, you know, kind of shared prosperity model of government and business forward, because I think increasingly corporate leaders recognize how important it is to have proactive, responsive, capable government, right? We desperately need that. So I think that, that's my view when I say restoration of government, right? That, that, that I think is a really crucial element of moving us to the sort of the next era of, you know, kind of what the world's gonna look like. That's really important. And then with respect to the second question point you raised in terms of purpose washing, I think we're, you know, the world is a wash in pur- <laughs> purpose washing. It always has been, right? I mean, there. there so I, I don't, I don't think that's different, right? There, there have been, you know, pe- virtue signaling, you know, and greenwashing and so forth. And now it graduates more to purpose washing. That's been there for a long time, uh, you know, kind of people who were, you know, cer- certain level of being disingenuous, just trying to cash in on on appearances. That that's not new. Uh, but I think what is new is the fact that the you know, the proclamations that are being made about what the purpose of corporations are, you know, are, are really fundamentally different than what they were 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. I mean, I think back, for example, on the work, you know, in the 80s and 90s when mission and vision was all the rage, right? That, 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 I still remember that teaching, you know, with my, you know, my old friend and, and colleague C.K. Prahalad, right? And his work on strategic intent, I think, was really important. And I remember teaching the core strategy class at Michigan, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, where we would bring, you know, those concepts about mission and vision in. But when you think back on it, most of that, most of the work on mission and vision, and even the strategic intent work was all was all competitive, right? It, it was mainly technocratic. It had to do with dominating a new market, you know, with with uh, surrounding and dominating competitors with you know, with becoming the best in the industry, you know, being number one or number two or what they, they, they were all competitive or technocratic uh, aspirations. Increasingly now, more recently, what you see are corporations declaring societal aspirations, right, that they will uh, challenge, I, I think of a company, I'm, I've, I've written down a few notes, so I'm thinking of some companies that I'm working with right now. Uh, like, for example, you know, they're the are the well-known ones, the, you know, the Unilevers and so forth, right? And or the interfaces in America, right? You know, where where their latest stated purpose is to take back a livable climate. That's the purpose of the corporation to take back the climate, uh, or a Unilever with a sustainable living plan, or maybe some of the lesser-known companies, like a, a company like Train Technologies, which is a Demerged product of Ingersoll Rand, where Train Technology is now a pure-play climate company. Right where their stated purpose is to, and I'm quoting, "boldly challenge what's possible for a sustainable world." That's the purpose of the corporation, uh, or you know, the the more purposey B Corp type, you know, a seventh generation where it's about transforming commerce uh, or leading industry to love the world you know, another that a stated interface aspiration. The, these are the kinds of, you know, purposes you see articulated. Now you can say that's just, you know, that's hyperbole, right? And at some level it is, right? It is, but it is a statement of intended direction, right? I mean, it it is kind of, mar- it's a marker, right? I mean, it's a flag in the grounds suggesting that that increasingly, These corporations are aiming to really solve problems out there in the world. Now, a lot of the work I've been doing in a big part of this new book is on trying to double click on purpose and make it real, right, to to move it beyond hyperbole. So uh, a a couple of the chapters in the book, you know, there is a chapter in the book on system redesign. So there's a chapter on restoring government. But I think equally important in terms of system redesigns are reinventing business education. And I'm happy to talk about that a bit because that's, of course, the work in creating this new uh, MBA program at the University of Vermont, I think, is we've just we've been able to stand up uh, at least a proof of concept that that can be done, that it's an MBA for the 21st century, not rooted in shareholder primacy and market fundamentalism because i think mba the mba education and business education is one of the root causes of the problem that we've had over the last 40 years it's created you know generations of people who have a very narrow view you know and, and end up out in the world in financial services and on wall street and in consulting firms and in private equity funds that have created the problem that we're living through right now Uh, So I think transforming business education and redesigning business education, which is one of the chapters in the book, is critically important. We have to creatively destroy the MBA as it currently exists because it's one of the root causes of the problem that we have. So, you know, I think reinventing, redesigning business education and restoring government as a partner in the creation of shared prosperity are two of the really important system redesigns. But then for corporations themselves, yeah, so I have a, cha- a chapter that's focused on re-embedding purpose, which, which is which is all about not just spouting hyperbole right out to the world, you know, on the on the website, you know, or I mean, I think that I don't mean to take that lightly or to make light of it, because right, I think in many ways, those things really are public proclamations of intent. Right, and we have to take them seriously and and actually hold the companies accountable. But at the end of the day, that means the companies themselves have to be able to convert that that very in some cases very flowery hyperbolic claim of what their what their corporation exists to do. That has to be converted into core strategy. So a, a lot of the work I'm doing now with companies is around what I'm calling development of aspirations and quests, which is like double double-clicking on purpose. What specific so it's it's a, it's something different than sustainability goals right? like most forward-leaning large corporations now have 2030 sustainability goals right which in many cases are quite are quite audacious and aspirational but if you look at those sustainability goals more often than not they're uh, and not this this is not a bad thing that I'm about to say it's just a statement of reality they're mostly functional you know kind of foundational goals in other words, they're 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 sort of more siloed, right? They have to do with reducing the carbon footprint, you know, of our you know of our of our facilities or our products or reducing water use or reducing energy use or dealing with uh, living wage or or gender equity or so all really important kind of issue based uh, aspirations or or sustainability goals out into the future. Uh, and in that sense, they're you know. They're the kinds of things that functions inside companies can take on and be held accountable for. But, uh, you know, or, or, or probably where we've seen the most progress is on the supply chain side, right? And, you know, in terms of sustainable sourcing. All really important, but when you think about it, those can be pursued in many cases without fundamentally changing the underlying technology and product portfolio of the corporations themselves. So at the, at the end of the day, you know what what an aspirate what aspirations and quests are all about in terms of double clicking on purpose, is operationalizing purpose in concrete terms about how the business is going to change over the next decade. What you know what specific business aspirations does the company have? How will it be different in the year twenty thirty than it than it is or was in twenty twenty? Not just in terms of you know we, we're going to have more certified. Uh, Uh, we're going to, we're going to have more uh, suppliers who are rainforest Alliance certified. That's all good, right? That's all good. But how are we going to actually shift our core businesses over the next decade? That's where the rubber meets the road. So this idea of of, uh, business aspirations and corporate quests, uh, you know, as I've been calling them, double click on purpose and provide the connective tissue between between this really broad statement of the directionality of purpose for the corporation, like you know, transforming commerce or boldly challenging what's possible or a sustainable living plan or sustainable in a generation, those are very big ideas. So let's double-click on those and, and make and, and be clearer about, you know, looking out a decade, here are the three or four or five ways that we will fundamentally transform our business and the business that we're in and what we're doing as a company, as a business. And then those then form the basis. They're the, they're the what's, they answer the question of what the company's going to be. Uh, and then you can construct meaningful strategies around those, right, to, to actually make them real. So that, that's what this work on reembedding purpose is all about. Purpose has to be reembedded back into the companies. Uh, not, it can't just be a statement of hyperbole hanging out here and then a set of operational kind of, of initiatives that don't necessarily connect in meaningful ways to what that stated purpose is. There needs to be a through line all the way, you know, from purpose down to strategies, operations, rewards and incentives, you know, and, and so forth. And that, So that, I think that's a really important direction looking out over the next several years.
0: But Stuart, like, as you are saying, I have many, many questions, and I would certainly get back to uh, the MBA education, but I have a couple of questions here and a point. So one is when you're talking about enterprises and they are really having those aspirations and you really create uh, what I call points or what you're calling as uh, development of aspirations and quests. The one thing, like how do we really bring the aspect of society in this? Because somehow uh, the societal aspect seems to be absent in a lot of corporate thinking. That is one. The second point, you you did name the company called uh, Unilever. I'm, I'm not trying to say that Unilever does it, but there are many, many enterprises across the world which have different standards for products available in certain different sets of countries. So if you would actually make a product which is fairly good in the West and you come here in India, uh, the product quality could be different and so on and so forth. Uh, so how, how do you even balance those facts? Because then you're suddenly trans, uh, what you call moving into two different realities and you, you're possibly not giving the best to the world.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think there there are a couple of responses there, and you know, as you know, in terms of kind of my work over the last thirty years or so, a big part of it has been on, you know, thinking about the underserved, the base of the income pyramid, as a source, uh, as an innovation driver. So rather than just thinking in terms of, you know, capitalist trickle down, you know, that that was the old thinking about the, you know, the the, the product life cycle that you innovate for the top of the market. And then you know gr- gradually as there are additional innovations coming behind those, the old products get cycled down to the lower income space, and they get the old stuff, right? That, right? That, that was sort of the old thinking about the international product life cycle. But I think increasingly we now see you know with the idea of base of the pyramid or of, you know Vijay Govindarajan's notions about reverse innovation that the underserved space you know can can be is already a driver of leapfrog innovation. And and it's because you don't necessarily have a lot of the same constraints that exist in the top of the pyramid markets, especially in a place like the the US, where there are lots of uh, inflexible rules and regulations that exist that prevent you from doing certain things that just don't exist, right, in, in the developing world. So it's possible, that's my notion about the Green Leap, that it's possible to think about the base of the pyramid as a as a place where next generation inherently clean and regenerative technologies and solutions can be incubated commercially first, uh, and then trickle up. right? So I think that, that's one part of the response to the question that you just asked. The, the other has to do with just, you know, with having global standards, right? And I think what we see are the best corporations, the best global corporations, uh, Behave in similar ways all over the world. That's not to say they try to force a one size fits all solution on the world, but they follow similar principles everywhere they operate in the world. Again, that's not to say that all corporations do that. You know, kind of companies, businesses, and capitalism is not monolithic, right? There are plenty of bad actors. There are plenty of laggards, right? It's a bell curve. What we're talking about now are the leading edge companies. But at the end of the day, I think it's really the leading edge companies, the companies, you know, sort of the the, the leading tail, that's what's going to drive the market. That, that's what will tip the, o- the overall way of doing things into a, into a new mode, into a new era. That's why I think it's so, incru- so crucial to pull more companies into that space.
0: That's quite interesting. Uh, let, let's take a, a step onto your work on base of the pyramid. Uh, when you started that work, I have always had this curious question, you started with the title bottom of the pyramid, but I think at a certain point in time, you started saying base of the pyramid. Uh, why did that transition happen? Because there has to be a huge intellectual reason for saying that. Uh, and if you yeah. would just throw some light on that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the, 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 the whole story, should I tell the story of how that piece on the fortune of the bottom of the pyramid first happened?
0: Oh yes, absolutely, please.
1: Because uh, because that that actually is is you know su- suggestive, right? Uh, and and is you know partially responsive to the question you just asked. So it so it really dates back to the '90s, um, and you know, again, I was at Michigan at that time, right? As a faculty member in the business school, and CK was you know a senior professor. CK, truth be told, is the guy that really taught me how to teach, right? I mean, when I first joined. I joined the faculty of Michigan in the mid '80s, and got thrown into the core strategy classroom and had no idea what I was doing, you know. So, and, and neither did my other rookie colleagues. Uh, so we totally cratered, and it was Prahalad then who got sent by the uh, chairman of the department because we we totally tanked the class to rescue the class. So he became the course head the next year, and then that's where I learned how to teach. But it's also how I got to know him a bit, and it was also how. I, you know, I became, there were very few people at the time. This is now the late eighties. And I, you know, my background is, you know, I, I don't have an MBA. My background is I have a master's degree from the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Now, now the Yale School for the Environment. And you know, worked in that space going back to the seventies. So I had always brought the perspective about environment I suppose what's now called environmental sustainability. Kept trying to bring that in, you know, in the, even in the mid to late '80s, and kept getting it thrown back in my face as a you know rookie as a rookie junior faculty member that it would ruin my career and so forth. Pralhad's one of the few people who encouraged me, right, who said like, hey, you know, we're professors; we don't get paid enough to have people dictate what we should be interested in or or what you know intellectually what 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 our cause is stick to your guns. You know, you got this weird background. If you don't pursue this, you'll look back in 20 or 30 years and you, you will always regret not having pursued this. So he's one of the people that, and, and so I, I took that to heart, you know, and made a very conscious choice in the year 1990 that this, this is what I was going to do, right? But this is before sustainability. Uh, back then it was called uh, environmental management. You know, it was called, so I created a program at Michigan called the Corporate Environmental Management Program a dual degree in 1991 right, between the business school and what was then the school of natural resources and environment. And I, be- that, and I began, that was my intellectual agenda starting in 1990. You know, that, I just made a choice that that's what I was going to do. So I began writing stuff about this at that point, And a lot of it started getting published in the mid-90s. And it's, and it's what kind of put me on the map intellectually and had a piece come out. Again, CK helped me tremendously on this, made an introduction at Harvard Business Review for me. Back in the mid '90s, you know, with uh, Joan Magretta, who used to be an editor there, you may know Joan. Uh, And uh, and I had written a couple of academic pieces. One was called "The Natural Resource-Based View of the Firm," where I try to bring the idea of environment as a strategy driver and opportunity for the company. That and so that was a theoretical piece, you know, an academic article. But I was able to kind of take a lot of that thinking and and turn it into a practitioner piece, and it was published in 1997 in Harvard Business Review. The title Beyond Greening Strategies for a Sustainable World. It was the first piece in Harvard Business Review that I think you could really call a kind of business and sustainability piece. There had been a few pieces done prior to that uh, including you know Mike Porter's piece you know that but it had more to do with the role of government right and, and the role of policy you know and the win-win which is I think important work. This was explicitly a strategy piece right about uh, about how to how to embed this kind of thinking in in core strategy. It was in in early 1997, and that's that's really sort of what put me on the map. And at the, about the same time, CK and Ken Lieberthal were working on a piece that ultimately was published in Harvard Business Review, piece that was that came out under the title "The End of Corporate Imperialism," but at the time it was a working paper called something like "Competing in Opaque Markets." Right, it was about you know, because <laughs> HBR is really good at branding titles, you know, uh, and it was about, you know, competing in India and China, right, and Ken Lieberthal was the China expert, CK was the India expert, and, Uh it's a really good piece of work, right, but it was mostly about, and so he asked me if I'd be willing to have a look at that, because he gave me great feedback on the Beyond Greening piece, and that's what caused us to strike up a conversation, because, you know, that we realized that you know, you know, I had in that Beyond Greening piece, there were three strategies. One was pollution prevention, one was product stewardship, and one was what I called sustainable development. And the sustainable development strategy was very ill-formed. It was just sort of a muddle of thinking about, you know, if we don't figure out how to somehow, you know, reduce the resource use and negative impact and waste of our of our capitalist economy, in the developing world as it evolves, we're screwed, right? I mean, that... So how do we think about strategies for sustainable development? But it was very ill-formed. And their piece, you know, was all about the kind of emerging markets in India and China and that we can't just do copy-paste of strategies from America and Europe. But it was looking mostly at the upper end of the market, right, kind of the rising middle class market. And that's what really caused the conversation to begin about the bottom of the pyramid, right? Like, and I guess we both realized that there was really nothing written that was from a business perspective about how business and corporations could actually take on the challenge of the lower end of the income pyramid through business, not just as something that you expect government and uh, and philanthropy and civil society to address. But that was the original motivation. So we just started tinkering with that and writing, and, the, and we used the term, well, you know, we, most of business has just been focused on the top of the pyramid and, you know, just assume that it's a division of labor and it's going to be government and NGOs and philanthropists that worry about the bottom of the pyramid. So how do we think about that in business terms? And so that was where the original notion came from. Uh, And then you saw the piece that came out. Ultimately, we started writing it in 97, 98, and nobody would publish it, uh, including HBR, right? Because uh, the feedback we got from HBR was, well, you know, this is interesting, but there's no multinational corporate examples in here, to which I'll never forget on a call with them. CK replied, well, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> and, uh, but, but ultimately, they it they, uh, uh, they, they, they was kind of on again, off again. And then the piece ultimately got published in what was then a fairly new journal, Strategy Plus Business. They came after it, right after 9-11. There was a special issue in Strategy Plus Business, uh, you know, on sustainability and security, uh, and so it was published in Strategy Plus Business as the for, as the Fortune at the bottom of the pyramid. And one of the re- and so then we got a fair amount of feedback, and then CK, of course, went on to publish a book by the same title, right, with with a bunch of cases uh, that you know stu- that students in his class, you know, had been working on, which you know which projected it much further out into the world and then we began to get a lot of feedback right there was a there was an explosion of interest in this uh and and i left michigan you know at that point i went to the university of north carolina cuz i didn't get tenure right i was denied tenure at michigan <laughs> uh and so i left and and uh and we started up this thing called the uh, at the BOP learning lab right which just like turned out there were a bunch of people's in com- in companies and entrepreneurs that had this interest, but they felt lonely, right? So this is almost like a support group initially, and people started traveling to this from all over the world, and you know we began and be, so we began to get sort of market feedback like that. And CK was off doing, you know, he, he was plenty busy busy in his own right, uh, and the idea of the bottom of the pyramid came to be, you know, associated with that book, right, uh, the, the fortunate bottom of the pyramid book. Uh, and then, you know, as is as expected, when something gets traction, you begin to get critical feedback, which is fine, right? But a lot of the critical feedback was, well, this is just nothing but exploitation, right? This is just selling cheap stuff to poor people that they don't need, extracting what little money income they have, and stuffing it in, into the corporate coffer. This is just the latest form of corporate imperialism. Uh, you know, was that that was, you know, kind of the and of course, you can find plenty of, you can cherry pick bad examples. You can always cherry pick bad examples of bad actors that are doing just that, right? That are doing just that. But that wasn't necessarily the motivation of all the corporations that were beginning to experiment in this space at that time. It definitely was not, right? The motivation of all of them. Uh, but we realized, you know, that, that, uh, that term, the bottom of the pyramid, you know, had a somewhat pejorative tone to it. And that, that was why we decided, and I, when I say we, it was sort of the group at UNC, which included, you know, at the time, doctoral student Ted London, uh, and a variety of other people, you know, who have now gone on, you know, to have, kind of, I think, really important careers in the space, that we would, we would call it base of the pyramid from that point forward. And that allowed us to stick with the acronym BOP, which had already kind of taken root by that time. So that was the reason for making that shift. Uh, which I think, in retrospect, made a certain amount of sense, right? Uh, I mean, it's 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 word smithing, but but sometimes word smithing matters.
0: Of course, like so that that was an important change. But on this whole bottom of the pyramid or base of the pyramid, given the COVID crisis, where do you see that? How how do we really solve the world now? Because what what COVID has done is. That people have got more poor over a period of time, the poverty lines or the poverty numbers have skyrocketed in the last uh, 12 months across the world. And suddenly it is going to have a huge impact on the world of business, how they really look at their strategies and things. So your body of work suddenly becomes so very important to resolve the problems that that we face now. Uh, say like in India, the numbers that have been projected is that uh, the Pew research recently came up that about 130 million people have gone down the poverty line in the last 12 to 14 months because of COVID. Uh, across the world, there seems to have been an increase of about 12 to 15% of people uh, below the poverty line. So that that's a huge impact that COVID has actually had. So whatever gains we might have actually had on poverty reduction in the last 15 or 20 years across the world, that seem to have got lost. And so how do we resolve for it? Because now it takes a much more important proposition in
1: the world. Yes, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's actually, a, you know, in this, in this new book I'm working on uh, <clears throat> what, you know, one of the, so there's, there's the work, as I mentioned on system redesign and there's the work on corporate transformation. I just described some of it about re-embedding purpose and so forth and, and redesigning the corporate architecture, right, to, to be more consistent. But the first part of the book is more historical. So there's a, a there's a kind of four or five hundred year look back and assessment of how corporate how capitalism has evolved, and then to try to extract lessons from that, sort of a history rhymes chapter. What are the enduring lessons that we need to that we can and should and must carry forward into this next cycle of capitalist reformation? Uh, and then, you know, from there there's a chapter on the the awakening to come, right? Which is sort of looking, looking out, right? how do we think about this? So in, you know, in that chapter, what, you know, what, what I, it's exactly what you're just, just describing, right? So if we if we go back 20 years, you know, in the wor- original work on the fortune at the bottom of the pyramid, the world was a very different place, right? Back, back then, right? It was, I'm looking at my numbers now because <laughs> we, uh, you know, back then it was about the 4 billion poor at the bottom of the pyramid, you know, and so forth. And that, that was, you know, there there really are no real precise numbers, and it all depends on what income cutoffs you use and so forth. But in rough numbers, that was probably fairly accurate, you know, depending on what, you know, what income number and assuming that poverty is defined by income, right, which is a obviously a questionable definition. But uh, that was probably about right, you know, that there were 20 years ago, there were 6 billion people or so in the world, and 4 billion of them were what we would think of as poor, right? So, the idea of the fortune at the bottom of the pyramid really made sense right like we we need to harness the power of business and capitalism in order to get after this this challenge right we how do we raise the bottom of the pyramid right it was what the mdgs were all about the millennium development goals and so forth and of course by you know 2015 or so they were able to you know kind of claim victory because you know they they cut poverty in half you know off the 1990 base but you know probably most of that was the explosion of the uh, you know economy in China, right, which 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 brought you know literally t- tens of millions or hundred, hundreds of millions of people out of extreme poverty. But you know, having said that, there was still a you know pretty clear clear track of people emerging from what you know quote extreme poverty, such that by you know last year as you know as COVID is striking, it's down. There there were in the year two thousand the best estimate I've seen is. Well, we talk about four billion at the bottom of the pyramid in terms of extreme poverty, right? And we'll we'll use the World Bank dollar ninety a day, which you know you can question and you probably should. But uh, that was maybe that was a little under two billion people in the year two in the year two thousand. Well, you know by twenty twenty it's down, you know it's it's down to maybe five or six hundred million, right? But since COVID, as you suggest, it's now up another two hundred million, right? So we're We're at 700 some million or so, best estimate, right, of people in quote extreme poverty, which is still half of what it was in the year 2000, but that doesn't make it any less severe as a problem. And, you know, if if we're gonna look out to 2030, right, and think about the SDGs of, you know, of ending poverty, uh, that's a pretty tall order, kind of given that we're going in the wrong direction right now. But but the but the, w- the way that I've begun to try to think about this, and it was already implicit in a lot of the work before, is that you know that the idea of poverty has really it was never monolithic, right? But it's but it's metastasized into several different forms that have become much more clearly defined. So there's the you know what I would think of as the form of poverty in what is the, in some ways the old, we'll call it the legacy base, which would be mostly rural, right, and mostly developing world, but not exclusively, where you you've had so much, you know, people, so many people leaving the farm, right, and of course this is part of the, in India, right, COVID has driven so many people back from the city to the country, uh, which which adds to the both the challenge and the opportunity, but so you have kind of the rural legacy base, which is more rural is rural and agricultural. So I think there's a huge challenge and opportunity just around lifting the agricultural, how do, how do we create a resilient, regenerative and sustainable agricultural base of the pyramid, right? That, and that's a lot of the work that's been going on around sustainable sourcing, a lot of the shared value work, right, has been focused around that in terms of, uh, farmer income labs and, you know, sustainable food labs. It's really important work. A lot of the big food and ag companies really have become committed to that. Right. And and so I think we, we, we should, we should respect that. Cause I think it's serious work. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the ag tech, you know, companies and fintech, you know, has been focused more and more on small farmers. Uh, how do we bring blockchain, you know, economic identities to small farmers and so forth and, and, and bring more information on uh you know, through SMS or even smartphones, you know, about crop advice and access to seeds and soil testing and climate. And so, I mean, I think all that's really positive. And so there's, I think there's lots of really interesting work going on around that space, which is responsive to the rural kind of legacy base of the pyramid To And in, in many cases, maybe we're able to attract people back from the cities permanently because uh, smaller rural communities, you know, could, might, should, we can aspire to have them become actual viable communities, right? Where where, where actually where there's where there's a reasonable quality of life and living wage. That that's not impossible to imagine. So I so there's one element, you know, kind of one one aspect of what we might think of as the as poverty or the base of the pyramid, which is that, right? But but then the second of course is the urban form, right? Which is all those who have migrated to you know the mega cities of the world. You know, in in a lot of ways, this looks like, you know, what Carl Polanyi wrote about, you know, the 19th century. Same thing happened then, right, when the economy industrialized for the first time. This is what happened, right? People left the farm, they moved to the city in search of opportunity, they got factory jobs. This was the great transformation that that Carl Polanyi wrote about. And it had, you know, just absolutely transformational. There were lots of problems, right? There was there was. Poverty there was violence. There was destruction of communities. There was loss of way of life all the same things that are going on now Only now, you know, we're this is the new next great transformation that we're in Uh, And so the the other piece of this then is the the urban aspect, right? You know the the, This is in many ways the middle, you know, the, the middle of the pyramid if you will right? that and that the truth be told the demographic of the world has shifted, it's no longer really a diamond, or no longer a pyramid, it's more of a diamond, right? That that as incomes have risen, and COVID has taken a bite for sure, but over the last 20 years, increasingly now, people are not at the very bottom of the pyramid from an income point of view. That, and if we look out to 2030, right, if, if there are similar trend lines from where we are today, and that's, question, I suppose you can question that, uh, the bulk of the population, you know, 5 billion plus will be in the middle income part of the, so it's really a, di- it's becoming a diamond. It's no longer a pyramid, it's becoming a diamond. Uh, and, and the big challenge will be the middle of the diamond, right? Because you have an exploding 5 billion plus people by 2030 in the, in the rising middle class, largely urban, right? Exploding megacities, urban slums and shanty towns evolving into more permanent communities. How do we get after that? Right. That that's an enormous business opportunity when you think about it, distinct from the rural opportunity. Uh, but but then there's a third, right, which is the declining top, right. Which and we've seen this happening for a while. It's not just in America. It's happening in Europe. It's happening everywhere. You know, it's it's the you know pre, the industrialized you know quote developed economies which have, you know, kind of fallen upon the end of an era where, you know, that very, the very industrialization, you know, that made them, uh, you know, is coming to a close. So, you know, we, we see in, in the United States has its own growing base of the income pyramid, you know, as people have fallen out of the middle class. Uh, that's a huge, I mean, that that's what's underneath a lot of the problems that exist in the country right now. It's both, uh, you know, rural in terms of smaller communities that have become deindustrialized. You know, in in parts of the old industrial Midwest, where I'm sitting right now in Michigan, uh, you know, as an example. But it's also racial, right? And and we see that racial reckoning happening in the country uh, around you know Black Lives Matter and you know and the uh, the challenges that people of color face. You know, and the systemic racism that still exists, and it's not unique to America, right? It, Exists in other parts of the world as well. It's going on in Europe. Same thing is happening. So I, I you know, I think we have that third element of what we might think of as business at base of the pyramid, as well, which is a which is a, a separate but related problem of poverty, uh, disenfranchisement, and uh, and business opportunity. Right. If we if we put on our on our entrepreneurial hat, it's a business opportunity. In some ways, it goes back to the piece that. Mike Porter did you know again back in the 90s on the uh, competitive advantage of the inner city right that but we can rethink that now you know less just about you know trying trying to uh, bring retail and, and affordable products how, how do we actually d- develop these communities in in ways that lift them for good right sort of so in some ways it's more of the you know kind of base of the pyramid thinking of serving and lifting right not just selling to the poor but serving and lifting. Um, so, at, as an example, I mean, we see more and more of that work beginning to beginning to start up, right? And so, as part of this new MBA program uh, that I mentioned at the University of Vermont, we do practicum projects. You know, with the, there's the coursework, and then there are practicum projects. And just an example, as an example, one of the practicums we're doing this year with Ben and Jerry's, right? And so, Ben and Jerry's, you know. Some, small niche company, you know, purpose-driven B Corp owned by Unilever, right, which is not trivial, right, because it's had impact on Unilever, uh, has, initi- has, is launching a new initiative and we're, we're working with them on this, uh, called climate reparations. And the, and the idea behind it is, uh, you know, they, they're looking to offset their historical climate, their historical carbon emissions, going back to the founding of the company. That's become popular, right? Somewhat, right? So, you, you know, you see the Microsofts and Googles committing to that, that it's not just about, you know, becoming carbon neutral in current operations or scope one or scope two or even scope three, but offsetting all of your historical, you know, back to the founding of the company. So Ben & Jerry's is committed to doing that. But the, but as part of it, the way the way they want to go about doing that is by making investments in black and brown communities that lift those communities economically and sequester carbon at the same time. They call it they call it climate reparations, and and it opens up the opportunity for the green leap, right? That that it really does to kind of bring forward, you know, these more regenerative and sustainable technologies, at, you know, commercially in those very communities, right? So. So I think we see more and more of that kind of work kind of le- leaning forward. Uh, how do we think about the declining top? You know, how do you lift the declining top and and reinject it back into the, you know, di- the dynamics of the economy at the same time? So we have these three levels, right, of of uh, you know, the underserved that are really important to get after if we're going to get to a sustainable world.
0: Fascinating Stuart, but then. Very short answer to this question. Do you think capitalism will be able to solve for all societal problems? or Because COVID has exposed a lot of problems that we say, like, say, healthcare infrastructure to uh, things around that. Uh, so do you think privatization or capitalism will solve it or governmental intervention would become more and more important as we go along solving the challenges that we see?
1: Yeah. So I'm back to where we started, which is... A crucial part of the reformation of capitalism is the restoration of government as a positive force, capable force, and in some ways, rather than just thought of as, yeah, we you know we need the government, you know, when things go wrong, they need to solve it, right? Or just to come in, you know, as crisis managers in you know in natural disasters or COVID or what have you, or you know, you okay, we need them to you know, collect taxes and we, you know, sometimes, you know, kind of regulate bad, bad actors and put people in jail. We need to get, you know, we need to get back to thinking about government as it used to be thought. I mean, there was a time, even in this, in America, when government was thought of as a positive motive force in the world, right? I mean, yep. there's some, all this really, it's sort of the uh, the uh, resurgence of Hamilton, Right, <laughs> you know that, that Alexander Hamilton, rather than just Thomas Jefferson and the yeoman farmer, Hamilton was the founding father who really thought about how important it was for government to project itself by building national infra- transportation infrastructure if we were going to actually develop the country, uh, by investing in manufacturing capability if we were ever going to make products for ourselves and get rid of the British once and for all as mercantilists. Right, I mean, the. And that's what America did, right? It built canals. It built the Transcontinental Railroad. It invested in manufacturing. It became a manufacturing center for interchangeable parts. That was all driven by government and infrastructure investment. So in some ways, it's what you see Biden projecting out there now, right, in terms of, of 21st century infrastructure. Infrastructure isn't just fixing potholes and bridges. It's investing in broadband. It's investing in, in electric vehicle infrastructure. It's investing in where we need to be in the future. and that that then creates the, that, that creates the pull for the capitalist and corporate sector to, to come in and really make it stick. Right? I, that, that's, how, that's how it has to work looking forward. So
0: last two con- uh, questions on the conversation, uh, Stuart, but then the most important one, you, you said a very important point that the MBA education has been the root cause for a lot of problems. And there is an urgent need to reform or transform in this whole education. Of course, you have been party to creating something very, very important uh, at the University of Vermont. Uh, but what more do you think needs to be done on an urgent basis? Because uh, there is a certain problem and we are right now living through it.
1: Yeah. So par- part of our, our uh, motivation, you know, to begin with, and you know Sanjay Sharma, right? Who's the Dean of the Business School at the University of Vermont, now the Grossman School. From the beginning, part of the motivation was not just to create, you know, kind of a a small new program, new MBA program, and it's called the Sustainable Innovation MBA, and it is a complete reinvention. We call it beyond saddlebag sustainability, right? It's not just a few elective courses in the second year hanging off the side of the old core, which is still 80s shareholder primacy driven. Rather, it's a complete reinvention from start to finish. So we've been able to do that and stand it up. It's standing on its own two feet, head above water, you know, in the black, growing, you know, more and more students applying to it. Whereas the traditional, conventional to your MBAs in decline, right? It's a it's a declining category. There are fewer applicants to those programs, not more. We're growing year over year, fifty to eighty percent in number of applicants to our MBA program. So that's great, right? As far as that as that goes, and I would encourage. You know, people who are listening to check it out right, if they're interested in doing an MBA. But we were never—that was never the only intention or, or or aspiration. The aspiration was to create, you know, a, a proof of concept, a model—not as not the only model, but a model—and then really become a Johnny Appleseed. That so for me personally, right? I'm no longer director of that program. You know, I was co-director for f- five years or so. Uh, Part of what I'm really motivated to do is to spread the idea of reinventing the MBA. There are more and more business schools and MBA programs that are in trouble, especially second tier schools in the US, but elsewhere, where you've seen MBA programs just shut down because they're losing money. Uh, And you'll see more and more, this is an industry in transition. Uh, and so we need Schumpeterian creative destruction of the MBA and the the big established incumbent players in the industry, you know, the Harvards and Stanfords and Kelloggs and Whartons and Michigans and so forth. They'll be the last to change, right? That they will take down protective coloration forever in the form of centers and initiatives with a lot of money behind. Them. And don't get me wrong, they do great work, right? I, I'm not critic. I, I myself spent, you know, 30 years building Saddlebag programs, right? At Michigan and North Carolina and Cornell, uh, I, I think it was high quality work. I stand by it, but it's still saddlebags, right? It's still this is the same old horse underneath it. We need to kill that horse, right? And so, we, we the one of our big challenges is to creatively destroy business education and reinvent it for the world that we actually face. So that's for one of my personal missions: is to is is to become engaged in that process. We have an online program that we've created and spun out called Leading the Sustainability Transformation, which is a badge certificate program. I'd encourage your listeners to check it out because it's, an, you know, a lower investment way of getting involved. It's a you know eight to ten week online program, simulation based with a lot of content. Leading the Sustainability Transformation as an on ramp, but then we're also working with a variety of different schools. Most of them, you know, so like the University of Victoria in Canada has just launched a new MBA program called the MBA in sustainable innovation, Colorado State Impact MBA, brand new, right? So the, the old the old dogs, original ones were like Presidio, right? And Bard and us, right? And, so, and Duquesne, we were sort of like the three or four schools that, re, that actually reinvented. Now it's spreading and it's mostly second tier schools because they're the ones that face the existential threat. Straight ahead, Clayton Christensen disruptive innovation thinking, right? That it's going to be, it's going to come from the bottom up. And, and it'll be the industry incumbents that are the last to change, and ho- hopefully they're not like the sun setting over the horizon, right? Which is the way he used to tell the story, <laughs> but but I think that that's how this will happen, right? It's gonna it's gonna come from the bottom up. It'll be it'll be driven by those players that are facing existential threat now that don't have a lot to lose, right? At Vermont, one of the reasons we we're able to do it is because the business school at Vermont had a, had an MBA ten years ago when Sanjay first came. But it wasn't very good. It was small. It was losing money, so it didn't take a lot for him to abolish it. Right? It, there wasn't a lot to lose. Uh, tell that to the people that you know, <laughs> the deans at you know Michigan or Kella, Kellogg or Harvard or Stanford or so forth. They got a lot to lose. It, they can't abolish their full-time you know uh, two-year traditional MBA program. It's a cash cow, right? They cannot abolish it. So I um, mean, it's it's straight ahead disruptive innovation thinking about it. The dynamics of how this will happen, but it must happen. I'm, I'm a- absolutely motivated to help you know try to be part of making it happen.
0: Interesting, but Stuart, um, on a closing note, if I ask you, like if, if you would like to tell uh, or suggest three books that the audience should be reading, to really have a transform- transformative uh, experience in their
1: thinking. How interesting. So, yeah, I'm looking over at my pile of books here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I I would say, um, you know, sort of directly related to this space uh, and a lot of the ideas that we've been talking about today, uh, I would encourage people, if they haven't already seen it, to have a look at Rebecca Henderson's new book, which you're probably familiar with, which is called Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. Uh, I think... I think John Elkington's book is also, is an interesting read. It's called Green Swans, his new book called Green Swans. Uh, But then I think, I think a book that really nails it, you know, maybe it's a little bit Americanized, but I, but let's face it, it's American style capitalism that's under fire. Right. And that needs to change. But that tells the story, I think in a way that, that is just incredible. It's a guy, it's a, by a guy named Kurt Anderson. Uh, and his new book is called "Evil Geniuses," and and it's and it's sort of really a multi-level, you know, storytelling of how the last, how the last forty years happened, you know, kind of the neoliberalist era, how that came to be and its consequences and what and what needs to change. Looking at it not just through an economic lens, but through a political lens, a social lens, a cultural lens, he weaves all those together. And the evil geniuses, of course, are the, you know, the, the, the motive forces behind the neoliberalist agenda. You know, it's the Milton Friedman's and Robert Bork's and Koch brothers and, you know, and, and, and on and on, right? That have, that have been able to kind of drive the capitalist agenda and financialize it and turn it into a shareholder primacy market fundamentalist endeavor. Uh, so he tells a story of how all that came to be, but also what the consequences have been and, what, and how we need to change it.
0: This has just been such an interesting interaction, uh, uh, Stuart. It's just been fascinating. I think I learned so much from it. Uh, I hope we are able to get onto the platform sometime in the near future and talk more about it, because I think we've just touched the uh, icing on the cake right now. There is so much to really discuss and really take forward. And I look forward to meeting you sometime soon over a beer. Probably I'll fly into uh, uh, Ann Arbor and visit you. Uh, would love that. We love it. And uh, so once the travel opens, I'll certainly make it a point to come over and be with you for a while uh, and catch up with you. Uh, and uh, I, I hope that you keep yourself safe in the meanwhile and uh, look forward to catching up. And thanks well, a thank lot for so joining
1: All the best to you, too. Right. And, uh, and be well. And, and hopefully India can come out of this. Absolutely. We will.
0: Thank you.